Early in the morning on September 16, 1810, a priest was warned that he would soon be arrested by Spanish officials. His brother and a band of followers took immediate action. They went to the local jail and freed dozens of prisoners behind bars because, like the priest, they had also been planning to fight the Spanish. That morning, the priest rang the bell of his local church, gathered his followers, and addressed them from his pulpit. He called upon them to overthrow the Spanish Empire, using a derogatory term for the Spanish peninsulares. Long live Our Lady of Guadalupe! Death to bad government! Death to the Gachupines! This speech, the Grito de Dolores, named after the small town of Dolores in the state of Guanajuato where the priest was from, instigated the Mexican War for Independence. And although the priest was arrested and executed less than one year after his speech, and the fighting would continue for another ten years, Father Miguel de Hidalgo is remembered as the father of Mexico. In just a few days' time, the president of Mexico will reenact the Grito from the balcony of the National Palace in Mexico City. Viva Mexico! Viva la Independencia! Viva los héroes! Y'all are like, all right, Emily, why are you talking about Father Hidalgo? Well, for one, it's part of my lifelong crusade to educate my fellow Americans that Mexican Independence Day is not on Cinco de Mayo. Put down the margaritas. But Mexico is also at the center of what I want to talk about today, and it's important to understand how heavily our neighbor to the south has been influenced by the United States even before its creation. It is no coincidence that the Grito came just a few decades after our own Declaration of Independence. In fact, the true orchestrator of the independence movement was not Hidalgo, but a man known as José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara. At the time, he was in Washington, D.C., asking the young American government for support against the Spanish. He was the first Mexican ever to meet with the U.S. government. After independence, Mexico's fortunes would constantly be tied to the United States, the relationship between the two countries will fluctuate regularly between alliance and warfare. For example, the Mexican-American War of 1848 resulted in the U.S. gaining 500,000 square miles of formerly Mexican territory. Hello, California! But this was soon followed by a decades-long dictatorship nicknamed the Porfiriato, and President Porfirio Diaz established a close diplomatic and economic relationship with the U.S., hoping for an infusion of cash from the newly industrialized country. The people of Mexico eventually rebelled against the Porfiriato, setting up a relatively legit democracy. And Mexican leaders swing back and forth between close ties with the U.S. and attempts to establish themselves as a fully self-sustaining government that doesn't take orders from Washington, D.C. The rocky relationship between the U.S. and Mexico is further complicated by the constant exchange that occurs between the two countries. And I mean, with a shared border that's 2,000 miles long, that is no surprise. Today, I want to talk about immigration. What has been our attitude toward immigrants in the past? Spoiler, not good. Why are so many people crossing the Mexican border? And what exactly is happening at the border right now under the current administration? Some of those questions are easier to answer than others, but I'm going to do my best. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's get some historical context. Act 1. A Nation of Immigrants. One constant in the history of the United States, a nation of immigrants, has been fear of immigrants. I know, it doesn't make any sense to me either. So the official term for this is nativism. 
the desire to protect and promote the interests of native-born people against newcomers, especially those who are from different ethnic, linguistic, and cultural groups than the majority of people currently living in the country. Meanwhile, Native Americans are looking around going, yeah, no kidding, maybe we should have built a wall in 1491. Ever since the arrival of the first immigrants on the Mayflower, nativism has been a strange continuity in our history. And I'm not at all trying to normalize this fear of immigrants. What's happening in our country today and fear of immigrants in general is not good and not normal. But it's important to understand that there is a long tradition of blaming issues on newcomers and thinking that preventing them from coming over here will solve our nation's problems. In 1775, before the U.S. even existed, Benjamin Franklin railed against the influx of German immigrants to the colonies. Germans! He warned that they were going to Germanize the country and would, quote, never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Oof. Pro tip, anytime you mention someone's complexion in the context of immigration, that is not going to end well. Also, what are you talking about, Franklin? Like, Germans brought us kindergarten and Christmas trees, hot dogs, and hamburgers. If those things are wrong, then I don't want to be right. In the mid-1800s, famine in Ireland and political revolution in Germany led to a wave of immigrants from these, quote, less desirable places. At this point in American history, the only proper immigrants were basically wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. A political party actually developed that was anti-Catholic and thus anti-immigrant. They hilariously named themselves the Native American Party. Again, Native Americans are like, seriously? But this reflects the ideology of nativism, or discriminating against people in groups that are not, quote, native to your country. In the case of American nativists, that meant people whose families didn't come over on the Mayflower or those who have a similar complexion. The Native American Party eventually broke apart over the issue of slavery, which sort of ironic to me that they were all in agreement about the Irish, but they disagreed about black people. Like, seems like they would have been on the same page about slavery, but I don't know. For a while, that party was surprisingly and scarily powerful. They held six governorships and gained control of multiple state legislatures before the Civil War, and all on the platform of basically being terrified of immigrants. The real nativist stuff hit the fan in the 1880s, when the Chinese immigrants started coming to the West Coast. Remember from season one, China in the late 1800s was struggling. They'd been forced open by the British, who got them addicted to opium— The Taiping Rebellion had just occurred, which is the bloodiest civil war in all of human history, and the country was divided over support for the emperor and a desire to overthrow their mandate. So as Chinese laborers came to the United States, many Americans freaked out. The optimistic explanation of why they freaked out was that the U.S. was going through an economic downturn in the 1880s, so they were just unhappy about the influx of any immigrant who might take a job away from them. But let's be real. There was a clear racial element to this as well. Many saw the Chinese as an inferior race that sat around and smoked opium all day. First, that's wrong. But second, the few Chinese who did sit around and smoke opium all day got it from the British. Like, we learned it from watching you. After having them build half of the Transcontinental Railroad, the Irish built the other half, Congress passed some of its first legislation aimed at preventing specific groups from entering the country. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was very well named because... It excluded all immigrants from China. And current people of Chinese descent already living in the U.S. were not allowed to gain citizenship. This law was on the books for 60 years. It wasn't repealed until 1943. I guess once you fight against Japan in World War II, we'll let you enter our country. How nice. 
In the same year as the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Immigration Act was passed in 1882. It imposed the first tax on non-citizens coming into the country, and it restricted immigration by limiting criminals, the insane, or, quote, any person unable to care for him or herself. This was intentionally vague, and it gave the government newfound power to decide on its own who was suitable for entry into the United States. So basically, before the 1880s, we had never really regulated immigration at all. In the 1880s is when we first start to pass legislation where we decide who can and cannot enter the country. Near the end of the 19th century, a wave of so-called new immigrants began coming to the U.S., Up until this point, the vast majority of immigrants, nicknamed old immigrants, were from northern or western Europe. They were lighter-skinned, more likely to be Protestant, and more likely to already know English. But by the late 1800s, new immigrants were coming from central, eastern, and southern Europe. Notably, Italians immigrated to east coast cities, and Jews fled persecution from eastern Europe and Russia. If you remember from season one, many Jews fled to the U.S., but others moved into countries like Poland, Austria, and Germany, contributing to a rising anti-Semitism and fear of foreigners that would allow the Nazi party to gain power a few decades later. Side note, a few years ago, I researched some of my family history and found out that my great-grandfather was part of this group of immigrants. We had no idea. My dad had always remembered his grandfather as a very mysterious figure with an accent that was hard to pinpoint. What we found out about this guy was crazy and could fill a whole episode, but basically he emigrated when he was really young from Eastern Europe because his family was Jewish. They were escaping the pogroms. They arrived in New York City at the turn of the century, and he eventually married a woman and went off to fight in World War I and never returned, to his wife at least. He came back and ended up in Texas under a new name. He pulled a Don Draper, y'all. He married again, moved away to work on an oil field, fell in love, and so naturally faked his own death so that he could marry my great-grandmother. Seriously, that's two fake deaths. And then we're the third family. I hope that someone from Ancestry.com is listening to this and sponsors my podcast. Like, try Ancestry.com today. You too might discover that your ancestor was a scoundrel. All right, back to history. So these new immigrants were heavily persecuted, The Ku Klux Klan, riding high in the South in the era of Jim Crow, also gained popularity with people who were anti-Semitic or just generally anti-immigrant. In the 1930s, for example, the phrase America First rose as a popular rallying cry for groups wanting to turn inward and not get involved in the rising problems in Europe, but for some it also carried a nativist message. Industrialist Henry Ford was a supporter of the American First movement as he warned about, quote, the Jewish plan to control the world. Famed aviator Charles Lindbergh became a spokesperson for the America First coalition that lobbied the government to stay out of World War II. Lindbergh gave a speech where he explained that he wasn't unsympathetic to what was happening to Jews in Europe, but that they should defend themselves instead of asking the U.S. to do it for them. Cool, thanks for nothing, Charles, said the Jews being deported to concentration camps. In the lead-up to World War II, over 100,000 Jewish immigrants did arrive in the U.S. escaping persecution, but... That was just because of the existing immigration framework that had quotas for how many people from a specific country could immigrate each year. Basically, early in the 1900s, the government set up quotas, and they were based on the amount of immigrants that were already here in the country. So there were more immigrants allowed to come from countries where more people from those countries already were in the United States. Does that make sense? It really heavily favored, especially Northern and Western European countries, so more people were allowed in, the quotas were higher from those countries, than from places that didn't have very many immigrants at all. So if you're coming from a place like Africa and the Middle East, it's almost impossible to make it into those quotas and come to the United States. 
So a lot of those Jews were able to make it in because the quotas coming from places like Germany and Austria were already relatively high. Unfortunately, during FDR's presidency, the quotas were only filled one year. That means that there were many more spots for even more immigrants to lawfully enter the U.S. and escape the rise of the Third Reich, and it would have required absolutely no change to the existing laws. But the government didn't let them in. Why not? So there are a lot of arguments that can be made for the simple fact that anti-Semitism was way more widespread across the U.S. and Europe than we now like to admit. There were also economic concerns, a little thing called the Great Depression, you might have heard of it. Not only were immigrants being limited from entering, but many who were already here were being forcibly sent back to their country of origin, but more on that in a second. The point of this is simple. In times of crisis, especially economic downturns, when everyone is a perceived threat to your ability to get or keep a job, it's easy to turn inward and blame outsiders for your issues. And no one has shouldered that blame more than the people from Mexico. Act 2. Mexican Immigration Although immigrants have come to the United States from all over the world, overwhelmingly the largest number have come from Mexico. One in every four immigrants in the U.S. today are from Mexico. So clearly, whenever the national debate turns to the topic of immigration, the southern border comes into sharp focus. It's important to acknowledge that, one, not all people of Mexican descent living in the U.S. are or ever were immigrants. Remember a little event called the Mexican-American War? Up until 1848, about one-third of the land that is now part of the U.S. was part of Mexico, and it was populated by Mexican people. This includes the current states of California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and parts of Wyoming and Colorado. So when the war ended and we forced Mexico to cede us that land, as if they had a choice, the people living there came with it. In fact, Mexican people living on that land had to deal with massive immigration from white Americans settling their land as they moved westward in the second half of the 1800s. It's a really interesting like role reversal. So even though the Mexican property rights were on paper protected by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, in practice, Mexican Americans' land was often taken by white settlers coming from the east. A lot of courts, dominated by white judges, required petitioners to present all documentation of land ownership in English, for example. And since the Mexican-Americans got their property titles from the Mexican government, or even the Spanish Empire, they didn't qualify. Knowing that they would be supported by the courts, a lot of white settlers just squatted on the land until the courts gave them the property rights, at which point they sold the land to speculators and investors back east. A lot of the land in the West was originally communal land, crucial to the Mexican-Americans for grazing, but as white Americans came in in the latter half of the 1800s, they often fenced off this land and sold it to the highest bidder. And these practices were validated by the government when they passed the Homestead Act. In 1862, this act gave 270 million acres of land away to settlers for free if they agreed to settle and work the land for at least five years. So for the second half of the 1800s, Mexicans, who are now all of a sudden Americans, part of the U.S. territory, are being flooded by white immigrants who are coming in and taking their land and their opportunity for jobs and economic gain. And some groups resisted. One, nicknamed Las Gorras Blancas, or the White Caps, raided towns in New Mexico in protest of these Anglo-American squatters. They unsuccessfully used violence and intimidation to try to scare off new settlers, burning down barns and tearing down fences. In some places, especially New Mexico, where there was still a sizable Mexican-American population, they were able to gain some influence in the government. However, for the most part, 
these Mexican-Americans slowly became outnumbered and were pushed down the social ladder. And this was worsened by the fact that gold was discovered in California in 1849, just one year after the end of the Mexican-American War. Ooh, that must have been infuriating to be the Mexican government and realize that you had been sitting on a literal gold mine all this time only to give it away to the United States. Since the 1800s, immigration from Mexico has been constant and relatively unmonitored. Since, especially in the West, there were many people of Mexican descent who'd always lived there, new family members crossed the new border to join them. The Border Patrol wasn't even founded until 1924, and for the most part, its job was to prevent the entry of banned groups like the Chinese. Mexicans were typically seen as beneficial to the economy, especially working as seasonal farm workers. And then the Great Depression hit. When the economy collapsed and the Dust Bowl ravaged farming communities, Americans were desperate for any type of work. In just seven years, from 1929 to 1936, over two million Mexican-Americans were deported and sent back to Mexico. Although, I shouldn't say back to Mexico, because listen to this, an estimated 60% of these people were birthright citizens of the United States. They were not from Mexico, they were born here. The government forcibly removed American citizens because of the color of their skin. Ooh, it was bad. But then, proving that Americans are a fickle friend, our attitude about Mexican immigrants shifted with the outbreak of World War II. All of a sudden, we needed people to do manual labor while the men were off fighting in Europe and the Pacific. And so the U.S. made an agreement with Mexico that came to be known as the Bracero Program. A Bracero is a manual worker or someone who works with their brazos, their arms. Between 1942 and 1962, over 4 million Mexicans were admitted legally to work in the U.S. These workers were often mistreated and were promised savings taken out of their paychecks that they never received. Some ex-braceros continued to petition the government for lost earnings, and it's estimated that as a group, they're owed $500 million. So, there's that. But the point is that throughout our history, the southern border has been relatively open. For most of U.S. history, immigration from Mexico has been categorized as a loop. What this means is that it was rare for people from Mexico to cross the border to stay in the U.S. permanently. The border was seen as fluid or porous in both directions. People crossed it to work seasonally or for a few years, and then they returned to their homes and families in Mexico. So for most of our history up until the middle of the 20th century, the total number of Mexican immigrants stayed relatively flat because people were always coming and going at about the same rate. But... All of this changed in the 1970s with a well-meaning military man who was a little too good at his job. Full disclosure, I got all this information from a podcast that is far better than mine called Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. You should really just listen to his episode called General Chapman's Last Stand. It's phenomenal. But essentially, General Chapman was a Marine who had been in charge of securing the border between the North and the South during the Vietnam War. It was a really important job, and when he came home, he chose to take... And when he came home, he chose to take charge of INS, or Immigration and Naturalization Services, to help shore up our own border. This was basically customs and ICE before those existed. INS was originally a relatively small part of the government that had not been too proactive seeking out people crossing the border illegally, as long as they weren't violating the law in any other way. And this was mostly out of a lack of organization and funding, all of which changed when General Chapman took control. He built up the INS to be a formidable force, and apprehensions at the border skyrocketed after he took control in 1972. What this, in effect, did was close the loop that many Mexicans had been doing for years. So now, crossing the border became a dangerous and high-risk endeavor. So once you went across, you stayed, because you couldn't be confident that you would ever be able to get back again. 
Instead of going home, once you got settled in, you brought your family over to you and you stayed on the U.S. side of the border permanently. So this is why we started to see a huge spike in the number of immigrants who had come across the border in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Gladwell in his podcast argues that it was the attempt to solve the problem by cracking down on immigration that actually caused the problem they were trying to solve. The closing loop and incentivizing illegal immigrants to stay in the U.S. and put down roots, thus increasing the overall number of illegal immigrants in the country. Ugh, irony, my old friend. But there have also been other factors that have led to an increase in the net number of Mexican immigrants in the United States. Act 3. Mexico recently. So what has been going on in Mexico over the last few decades? In short, a lot, but there have been a few trends since the 1980s that have directly impacted the U.S.-Mexico relationship and especially the spike in immigration across the border. First, the Mexican economy for decades after World War II was crushing it. Economists nicknamed it the Mexican miracle. But since a lot of their economy was based on oil and trade with the U.S., when oil prices dropped and stagflation hit the U.S. economy in the 1970s, it rippled out to economies around the world, especially in Latin America. By the 1980s, Mexico was in full economic crisis. This is sometimes referred to as the lost decade, as economies across Latin America had to default on international loans that they'd taken out when the economy and oil prices were booming. Why does this matter for us? Well, poverty is the main driving force behind two main issues in modern Mexico. Immigration and drugs. As the economy weakened, people either leave to find better jobs, or they stay and they link up with organizations that can provide stability and wealth. And those organizations often are not the government. By the 1990s, the powerful Colombian cartels had fallen. The U.S. had done such a good job eradicating the Cali and the Medellin cartels, but drugs weren't going away anytime soon. So all that it did was incentivize other groups to step in and pick up such a lucrative opportunity. And Mexico was in a prime position to take over the cartel business because they had already been the middleman between Colombian cocaine and American buyers. And they were successful. So by 2007, Mexican cartels controlled 90% of the cocaine entering the U.S., even though 90% of that cocaine was still grown in Colombia. Talk about a market takeover. NAFTA, passed in 1994, didn't really help matters. When North America opened its borders to the free flow of goods and money, Mexican markets were often flooded with cheaper American crops. Many farmers were driven out of the legal business of growing things and into the illegal business of growing things, namely marijuana. Also, as money and goods flowed freely across the border, NAFTA did not make arrangements for the free flow of people to follow the jobs and the money. So illegal immigration continued to rise as more farm families, often not wanting to grow drugs for the cartels, but not able to find honest work, sent their sons or husbands across the border to send their American paychecks back home. These are called remittances, money sent across the border to support families, and they have grown to $26 billion in 2017. Remittances from the U.S. are a larger part of Mexico's GDP than oil revenue. Throughout the 90s, drug cartels grew in power as the Mexican economy tried to rebuild itself in the new NAFTA era. The cartels had always been bad and violent, but in the past, the Mexican government essentially looked the other way. Sometimes this was done on purpose, as the cartels bribed political officials, but often it was just because the government lacked the time and resources to address the growing drug issue. But 
In 2006, with the support of President George W. Bush, conservative Mexican President Felipe Calderón officially declared war on the drug cartels just eight days into his presidency. By the end of Calderón's six-year administration, over 60,000 people had died as a result of the drug war, and that number has more than doubled since 2012. The drug war is still ongoing in Mexico, and it's been another catalyst for immigration across the border, especially as violence has spread to surrounding countries in Central America. A lot of the migrants that we're seeing today in the, at the border, especially families and children, are fleeing drug-related violence across Central America. Of the 50 most violent cities in the world, 12 are in Mexico, two in Honduras, and one each in El Salvador and Guatemala. The drug war is an important context for understanding the issue of immigration today for two main reasons. First, it is the reason a lot of people are crossing the border, especially those seeking asylum. According to U.S. immigration law, based on the U.N. Human Rights Convention, an asylum seeker is someone, quote, who is unable or unwilling to return to his or her home country and cannot obtain protection in that country due to past persecution or a well-founded fear of being persecuted in the future on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion, end quote. According to this law, Anyone seeking asylum will be given protected status by the U.S. government for one year, and then they're allowed to apply for lawful permanent residence, or a green card. But a quick note on asylum seekers. One of the ways that the government is currently justifying sending away asylum seekers coming from Central America is that they claim they do not fit that legal definition. Drug violence does not necessarily fit the legal definition of persecution based on, quote, race, religion, nationality, or membership in a particular social group. So, as people cross the border and ask for asylum, they're often instead treated as illegal immigrants. The other reason that the drug war is important for understanding immigration today is that it has contributed heavily to the negative stereotype Americans have about immigrants, especially those coming across the Rio Grande. Negative stereotypes have always existed. For example, almost a century ago, when prohibitionists were working to get rid of alcohol and drugs from society, they made a conscious decision to call the drug marijuana instead of the more scientific cannabis. This was the Spanish word for the drug, and it evoked a strong negative reaction, similar to the Chinese opium dens in California, or the stereotypes about hard-drinking Irishmen in the Northeast. And one group you've probably heard about in the news is MS-13. This is a criminal gang organization that originated in Los Angeles in the 1980s. Most of their members are originally from Central America, and their influence spread from California to other parts of the U.S., Mexico, and Central America. They were known for their brutality, making them a popular tool of drug cartels looking for enforcers and soldiers, especially for the Sinaloa cartel. So even though negative stereotypes have always existed, the rise of gangs like MS-13 and Mexican cartels and drug-related violence has made it easy for politicians seeking a stronger stance on immigration to play on this fear. Then-candidate Trump famously said, quote, When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. End quote. In case you weren't sure where I stood on this issue, allow me to throw a few facts at this statement that have been gathered and generally accepted by multiple peer-reviewed studies and decades of research. No alternative facts here. Fact one. Less than 2% of male immigrants in the U.S. between the ages of 18 and 39 have served jail time. Less than 2% as opposed to over 3% of native-born American men in the same age range. Fact two, the influx of immigrants during the 90s and early 2000s actually preceded or came before a decline of crime in most cities. That's surveying 100 cities in the United States. Crime decreased after we saw an influx of immigrants in the 1990s. 
Fact three. Also, this idea that Mexicans are flooding across the border in larger and larger numbers is just wrong. Mexican immigration hit its apex or its high point in 2005. It's been decreasing ever since. In 2015, the U.S. experienced an outflow of 140,000 Mexican immigrants as more people left the country than entered. All right, so facts are important. Most recently, the Trump administration has come under fire for its zero-tolerance policy at the border that's resulted in an unsettlingly unknown number of children being separated from their families. There's still a ton of confusion and misinformation flying around about this issue, but I'm going to do my best to provide a little bit of historical context to understand the roots of policies like this. So the policy has its origins in the George W. Bush era with Operation Streamline, a joint initiative of the new Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. Started in 2005, this established a zero-tolerance approach to illegal border crossing, so that meant that they would criminally prosecute everyone detained at the border. There were mass trials with dozens of illegal immigrants tried at the same time. In just one sector in Texas, criminal prosecutions for illegal border crossing jumped from around 4,000 a year to 16,000 in 2005. The program continued to expand, and during Obama's first term, total prosecutions tripled to 44,000 in 2010. So yes, Trump is correct when he says that this policy is not new to his administration. But throughout the Bush and Obama eras, exceptions were typically made for people traveling with children. During Obama's presidency, he changed his administration's focus to zero tolerance and deportation of immigrants who had committed crimes in the U.S., Obviously, this is excluding the crime of illegally entering the country in the first place. So essentially, under Obama, the Justice Department and immigration enforcement was directed to not prioritize illegal immigrants who hadn't committed any other crimes. Parents especially who hadn't committed any other crime were prioritized for quick release from detention centers so they would be reunited with their children. So a big question, were children separated from their parents during the Obama administration? As far as I can tell, and I promise I really did a lot of research to find evidence of this, this only happened in extreme cases. For the most part, families were detained together or parents were released but were given ankle monitors or expected to check in with immigration officials as they awaited trial. This was part of the Family Case Management Program, and that gave special priority to asylum seekers who were, quote, Families with certain vulnerabilities, including pregnant or nursing family members, those with very young children, family members with medical or mental health concerns, and families who speak only indigenous languages and other special needs. And I mean, keep in mind, it can take years to process asylum claims. So a lot of these people who are seeking asylum, even if they go through the legal process, it might be years before it's determined whether they can stay or not. Illegal immigrants' children's rights were addressed in 2016 when the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Flores v. Lynch that detained immigrant children should be released as quickly as possible, although parents are not required to be freed by that law. The Obama administration complied by maintaining a policy in which parents and children were typically released after being detained together for 21 days. When Trump was campaigning, he nicknamed the Obama policy Catch and Release, it was one of his main campaign promises to end this policy and take a tougher stance on immigration. Today, the general policy is to reject asylum seekers from Central America and Mexico either directly by deporting them or indirectly. So there are reports of immigration offices essentially giving asylum seekers the runaround. Like, we've reached our quota for the day, which isn't a thing. There's not a quota on asylum seekers. Or you have to already have a visa, which is not true. Or you have to file with the Mexican government first. Again, not true. Good old bureaucratic red tape. 
As far as the separation of families at the border, we're still gathering information, but we do know a few things based on reporting that's been done using facts provided by DHS. So just to be clear, this information I'm about to give was provided by Trump's administration, the Department of Homeland Security. From July to October 2017, the Trump administration ran what the DHS called a pilot program for zero tolerance in El Paso. Families were separated, including families that were seeking asylum, and children were then reclassified as unaccompanied and sent into a network of shelters with no system created to reunite them with their parents. According to this report from the DHS, the idea of separating immigrant children from their parents as a way to deter immigrants was reviewed by the Trump administration just two weeks into his presidency. A review of government data found that as a result of this pilot program, about 700 migrant children, more than 100 of them under the age of four, had been taken from their parents since October 2017. At that time, the Department of Homeland Security officials said they did not split families to deter immigration, but rather to, quote, protect the best interests of minor children crossing our borders. Saying it would save $12 million a year, in June, the Trump administration ended Obama's family case management program, which kept asylum-seeking mothers and their children out of detention. After viewing these initial programs as a success, in April of 2018, Attorney General Jeff Sessions directed federal prosecutors to, quote, adopt immediately a zero-tolerance policy for all offenses related to the misdemeanor of improper entry into the United States, and that this zero-tolerance policy shall supersede any existing policy. The idea was that first-time offenders, who in the past had faced removal but not criminal conviction, these first-time offenders would now be imprisoned, tried, and convicted. This is extended to families seeking asylum who have typically been kept together and allowed to remain in the country as they go through the process of applying for asylum. The impact of this policy has been massive. Once the public found out about the impact of the zero-tolerance policy on refugee families, many were outraged. The Office of the United Nations Commission for Human Rights called on the administration to immediately halt the policy of separating children from their parents. In June of 2018, Trump signed an executive order reversing the practice of separating families, although zero tolerance remains the policy at the border. Basically, families are now just supposed to be detained together. To date, there are still supposedly hundreds of children who haven't been reunited with their parents. Agencies seem to be passing the blame around, and it would appear that there are very few records kept of who was separated and where they were taken. Hotlines set up for parents or their attorneys to find their children are often an obstacle course of red tape, and some of the parents have already been deported. In short, it's a mess. So let's bring this home and tie it all together. Throughout U.S. history, nativism rises as an easy, unifying ideology, especially amongst people who are poor, less educated, and vying for jobs that could also be filled by immigrants. Nativism also tends to be more popular with older citizens who are less open-minded about cultural change. And this is Trump's base. If you look at the statistics of who voted for Trump in 2016, and you were to create an individual who would make up the, quote, typical Trump voter, they would be a white male over 40 with less than a college degree who lives in a small town or a rural area. And this is the exact population that is the most susceptible to nativism. It makes perfect sense that Trump's campaign slogan would be America first. It makes perfect sense that he would want to build a wall and crack down on immigration. And it makes perfect sense that he would capitalize on this fear and call immigrants from Mexico criminals and rapists. There's a saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And right now, build a wall rhymes with not filling quotas in the 1930s. 
Criminals and rapists rhymes with opium addicts. And America first rhymes with America first. 